Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, promoting a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day and rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Hosted by Josh Abitoy and Ben Dunson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the American Reformer Podcast. I'm Ben Dunson, the Editor-in-Chief of American Reformer, and with me this morning, we have Josh Abatoy, who is the Executive Director of American Reformer. We have Tyman Klein, who is Associate Editor of American Reformer, and we have a special guest this morning, Aaron Wren, who, in addition to being a Senior Fellow at American Reformer, is also a prolific author and podcaster. Thanks, Aaron, for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, I think this is going to be fun. Uh, you have written a, a newsletter. This is your, your 78th newsletter, which um, listeners can find on your Substack. Uh, they can go to AaronWren.com and they can find this, this newsletter. Uh, you've, you've written a, a newsletter about uh, Big Eva and kind of shifts and, and uh, power dynamics that are going on in the, in the world of, of Big Eva. And uh, this is specifically related to debates about complementarianism and um, claims that are being made about uh, fundamentalism. So uh, if people want to go and read that, this is uh, newsletter number 78. If I was going to summarize this, I I just took one sentence from your article, and I I think you could summarize it this way, that um, there are these, these shifts in Big Eva where there is a very powerful group that wants to, and here I'm quoting you, eliminate complementarianism as a movement boundary and replace it with anti-fundamentalism. That seems to be um, the, the, the main gist of, of your article. So I wanted to ask you, as we get started here, if you could give us some of the context for this article, you know, what prompted it, and if you could just summarize your argument for us, and then we'll, we'll dive into it. Sure, happy to do that. This first came to mind when I read a document that Tim Keller wrote called The Decline and Renewal of the American Church. It was originally released in four installments, uh, each uh, coming out in a different quarter of the year. And then at the end of last year, November 22, he issued a consolidated version that had a significant amount of new material. And in it, he laid out his strategy for what he thought the church ought to be doing. And it really struck me when I read it that he's looking to essentially reposition the group of which he has traditionally been most associated with, which is sort of the new Calvinist movement, sort of this reformed theology movement, uh, and shift its emphasis away from some of its particulars and towards kind of a new set of particulars, and even really a new alliance that isn't per se new Calvinism necessarily anymore. And new Calvinism, the young and restless reform, whatever you want to call it, uh, was self-consciously complementarian, which I'm not going to define all these terms because I'm going to assume that uh, readers here, listeners here uh, know what these terms mean. But you can look it up online if if not. Uh, But the new Calvinism movement which his leadership is essentially relatively coterminous with what Carl Truman labeled Big Eva. It's not 100% overlapping, but at least 75% of the people you would label Big Eva probably fell into that camp. 
had traditionally been very staunchly complementarianism, complementarian. The Gospel Coalition, which is the key new Calvinist hub that Keller co-founded, was constitutionally complementarian, as were a number of the other organizations, uh, and of course, including the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which is the main uh, promoter of complementarianism. And we saw in this this document that he wanted to essentially eliminate complementarianism as a uh, call it a boundary marker as one of the defining features of who's in the movement and bring into it people who are also egalitarians, sort of more conservative leaning egalitarians, while at the same time further distancing themselves from fundamentalism. I think probably it's fair to say this group had always maintained some degree of distance from fundamentalism, but it does seem there's much more of a hard break that he said should be done. So obviously, um, you know, Tim Keller's no longer with us, but I'm like, wow, this is a pretty directly explicitly laid out strategy. And so then I started keeping my eyes open and I started noticing little things uh, like the way Russell Moore was positioning himself, certainly call it repositioning himself as he's acknowledged, he's changed his positions and the different uh, debates that have been going on in the Southern Baptist convention and I say people are trying to make this come to life. And as with my three worlds of evangelicalism piece, uh, where I try to create a model that would help people understand the world, I wrote this piece to give people a framework to understand what is going on with some of these debates. That there isn't just you know a random Russell Moore column here or a random debate in the SBC there. But there is something of a movement. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's not a bunch of people all in a room coming up with a master plan. It's much more emergent than that. Uh, nevertheless, there is a movement towards uh, softening these boundaries around evangelicalism, I mean, around uh, egalitarianism, complementarianism. And then I think um, anti-fundamentalism, which we could view, we could talk more about that. We could sort of view it almost as a proxy for anti-Trumpism. I think it comes in part out of the uh, evangelical split over Trump. Uh, but I just wanted to lay that out there and give people an understanding. Here's what's going on in a bigger context. And it has really resonated with a lot of people and helped them to say, wow, yeah, this does help me make sense of what's going on. Uh, so that's part of my skill set coming from a strategy background. I sort of recognize when there's strategies in play. And so, yeah, that was the genesis of it. Great. Yeah, Aaron, that's very helpful. Uh, Aaron, um, quite, I, I know um, I'm not going to ask you to define everything here, but one word that gets used in, in the strategy documents quite a bit and probably bears some careful definition because of the pivotal role it plays is the word fundamentalist. Um, I, I uh, you know, I haven't read all of these documents. I know that there's sort of a historic a particular definition of fundamentalist that would go back to the uh, factions that uh, separated from the main lines in the 1920s and generally had a uh, fairly separatist cultural engagement strategy throughout most of the 20th century. Uh, famously, Carl Henry and the other evangelicals at, at Christianity Today and other institutions sort of reemerged in the public square in the 50s to try to reengage with uh, mainstream society. Um, but that, that's sort of the, the historic 
term fundamentalist, um, but it, 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 it is sort of famously ill-defined, but how does, how does Keller define it? I mean, what, what is the, what is the operative definition for purposes of this strategy? Well, he talks a lot about it, but at a basic level, he uh, draws on George Marsden as defining fundamentalism as involving a set of social traits that include anti-intellectualism. I'm reading from his document right here. Anti-intellectualism, the marriage to American culture, sectarianism, legalism and emphasis on secondary and tertiary doctrines, and pietism and individualism that rejected the need for social reform or cultural engagement. That is basically his definition of fundamentalism. Now, he talks a lot about that. Uh, so I don't want to suggest that I've fully uh, presented his 83-page document here. I'd encourage you to go into more detail. But those are essentially traits, social traits that we associate with fundamentalism, which he believes many of which were actually carried over into this uh, neo-evangelical movement and essentially needs to be purged out of it. Uh, and so uh, I think that is fair to say that those are some of the the things that he would define as. And I think it's, um, uh, you know, relatively accurate, uh, to be honest. Uh, I might add, you know, I might have described some of these things a little bit differently. The sectarianism I might describe as a highly combative posture uh, versus um, versus people who don't share their beliefs. But I think this is probably a uh, probably a you know relatively good definition. It strikes me that there's a little bit of an apples and oranges problem with the taxonomy because egalitarianism is. Uh, you know, this is a, a stated belief, right? Like it, you can kind of see it on the face of a statement of faith or whatever. It's an express principle that can be stated in you know, a relatively binary way, right? Like who is eligible to be a pastor in a church? And there's very clear dividing lines over that. Uh, the, I, I mean, even, even that definition that does help fully does help flesh it out, but it it's really a set of attitudes um, and who is a fundamentalist may be a matter of perspective. I don't know, maybe, you know, me or Timon or Ben are fundamentalists. Uh, well, we probably are to quite, a, to quite a number of people, but, um, the, the, there's a, the, there's an asymmetry there between, you know, the thing that, the thing that will now be accepted as part of the strategy, which is crossing sort of a theological bright line, uh, versus what's actually much more nebulous standard, which is what's the, you know, what are the set of attitudes of this group that we want to ostracize? Yes. Keller himself is a complementarian. I don't believe he ever said that he was, not, he rejected that. So uh, he is a complementarian and he does not view complementarianism as a necessary component of fundamentalism. And in fact, his strategy does divide essentially the complementarian uh, world into essentially two groups or really three groups, which he labels Zone 1, Zone 2A, and Zone 2B. So Zone 1 are the fundamentalists. They are complementarians, but that's not their defining characteristic. Uh, those are essentially the bad complementarians. Then Zone 2 are the good complementarians, uh, with Zone 2A being 
less willing to work and collaborate with egalitarians institutionally, and zone 2B being those who are willing to work and collaborate more with egalitarians. So I, I think where this would overlap with the fundamentalist definition is his note of the emphasis on secondary and tertiary doctrines. I do think he would say complementarian versus egalitarian is a secondary doctrine, which is basically true. And therefore, we should look to collaborate with people who disagree on that point uh, in this new strategy, uh, again, drawn well, heavily from the 2A, 2B variety of uh, complementarianism. And then, uh, you know, he labels the 3A variety who are the most conservative egalitarians. So fundamentalism is sort of an overlay on it. And in his document, really one of the things that he does not like the fundamentalists for is not complementarianism. It's the fact that they do not want to participate in social justice, that they are hostile to the church being involved in social justice initiatives. I think to him, that's probably the more negative characteristic of the fundamentalist because Keller does view that as that is not to him, I guess, a secondary doctrine that to him is a more of a primary doctrine or a secondary doctrine that actually matters. Yeah, but even there again, I mean, it, uh, I, I'm sorry to push on this, but, you know, like social justice is not something that's one's posture towards social justice is not something that's easily codified in example, like a statement of faith. Right. I mean, it depends on these factual assumptions about, um, you know, are police disproportionately violent towards certain groups in society or what have you. Those are those are shifting judgment calls based on facts on the ground, whereas, you know, egalitarian and egalitarian uh, ism versus complementarianism is, is like a, a statement of principle that can be made without respect to the facts on the ground. So it's it's still, you know, forming forming like a long term church group that's organized around a principle like this still strikes me as like incredibly um, it's an incredibly vague and manipulable standard in a way that uh, is, is distinguishable from sort of clear statements of theology. I think that's true. Aaron, um, wh what do you make of the construction of this, uh, these four zones that Keller set out? I, my, when I, when I sort of see them and react to them, my, my initial reaction is, these are not sort of remotely comparable in terms of scale and constituencies. Um, you know, my denomination, the SBC, you know, just voted by, a, you know, 90% uh, at the convention to uh, pass very bright line rules about uh, women in, in leadership. And, you know, likely, I mean, I think they went 90% for Donald Trump. The, you know, I, I suspect that a large percentage of evangelicals would be categorized as fundamentalists uh, in these zones. So, you know, maybe something like 60, 70 percent. Um, and then, you know, the deconstructionists on the other end of the spectrum, I mean, that 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 category may have one or two percent of evangelicals, a very vocal percentage for sure. But um, it, it strikes me. Well, what, what do you make? What do you make of the construction of these zones and how they're how they're pitched in the strategy? So Tim Keller created a four zone framework and it created a chart of these four zones, 
the zones were zone one, fundamentalist, zone two, conservative evangelical, which is complementarian, zone three is egalitarian evangelical, and zone four is ex or post-evangelical. And he does show in his graph all four of these being the same size. Uh, so I, there are probably many critiques you could make of that framework. He anchors it to a framework that was written by a gentleman, I believe it was George Packer in the Atlantic originally, talking about different tribes of Americans. So he tries to uh, anchor it to that. Uh, so there are probably are ways that you could critique this. He's presenting it as a framework, which like all frameworks, it's a tool. What I think is fair to say is that Keller defines frameworks that present the situation and the facts in ways that are going to bias the reader or the hearer towards accepting his recommendations. So he is, that's going to be the nature of how his frameworks function. So the three worlds framework that I created about the positive, the neutral, and the negative world, Tim Keller didn't like that framework at all because it does not present his approach at the center uh, as being on the tip of the spear. Again, I, maybe that's uh, overstating a, a motivation that he had, but he certainly disliked it. And I can understand why he disliked it. For that very reason, it does not position the Keller strategy at the tip of the spear of evangelicalism at the center of where everything is supposed to go. So he viewed that framework as very threatening to what he was trying to accomplish. So naturally, he's going to create frameworks that are very positive towards what he's trying to uh, accomplish. So I would describe that most likely not just as descriptive, but as a preliminary step in preparing the reader to accept the recommendation that he's putting forward. Yeah. Not to it, say that the four zones are invalid. I actually think there's a lot of good in the framework, uh, a lot that's useful in thinking about it. But as you say, there are many ways it could be critiqued, such as saying the way that he presents them on his physical graph as if each box is the same size, when in fact they're radically different sizes. Well, it strikes me, and, and this is it's not really any secret that there's been very widespread evangelical dissatisfaction with their own leadership class, right? I mean, um, relatively obscure, no-name discernment bloggers will rack up far more reads and views on you know social media platforms than you know Gospel Coalition. Um, you know, we had in the SBC, we had you know approximately ninety percent vote for Donald Trump. And our major think tank did everything it could to be total enemies with that administration, undermining its policy work in D.C., totally unable to pick up the phone and, you know, actually talk to anybody in the administration. Um, it, this, if you don't get that right, like this very basic question of who's my constituency and, and are we building um, institutions that are responsive to the constituency, you're going to, the inevitable result will be, um, you know, the on, on continuation of, of leadership crisis. Now, perhaps perhaps the answer to that, you would say, is, um, you know, the, 
the broader evangelical world is not really Keller's constituency. That's what I would say. If you look at Keller's work and look at this strange uh, framework, yes, he is talking about the decline and renewal of the American church, but his concerns, as with much of what he does, are presented as very evangelistic. It's the constituency that he's trying to reach is the constituency of the lost. Uh, and seeing that as, you know, you know, one way to do it. I'm not sure that he would view himself as uh, primarily as a person who's here to shepherd the existing sheep, although that's that's part of it. He's always had a strong evangelistic bent. Yeah, which is interesting. That puts him um, very much like J.D. Greer in the article that you you referred to, because he, he 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 the way he basically dismisses all of the concerns about complementarianism is he says, "I want to be about the Great Commission." There are too many people on their way to hell for us to get quagmired in policing each other. Right. Uh, uh, you know, that's you know, some of those could be genuine, some could be disingenuous. But with Keller, I mean, this really has been how he's thought about his ministry for a long time. However, I would say he's been very heavily shaped in how he thinks about evangelism in terms of the New York City constituency that he was reaching as a pastor. So the, you know, white working class people that J.D. Vance described in Hillbilly Elegy who call themselves evangelical but don't go to church, uh, you know, who don't have college degrees, who come from a very culturally conservative background but don't necessarily know Christ – that's not the primary audience that Keller has spent the last 30 years reaching. And I don't think everybody needs to reach every audience. I think it's good to have a guy that says, I'm trying to reach college-educated adults in a Manhattan setting or people who have similar type orientations. However, when everyone else orients themselves around that, you end up losing your focus on mission because you're overlooking other groups that need to be reached. So one of the things that I argue in the negative world is that we're going to need much more plural, pluralistic strategies uh, to do it. So if I were going to, to to talk about Keller, it's like his strategy for evangelism is the strategy for evangelizing New York City as he experienced it. Hmm. Yeah, and that that's fascinating. I mean, that the I want to park on that a little bit because... Can I interrupt I, for a second? For sure. Because it really struck me that about a year ago, I think, when I went to the SBC's missions page, there's a huge picture of the Manhattan skyline. That is the aspirational market that people are targeting far beyond Kellerland. From my view of the world as a Southern Baptist, my view is basically this. Uh, the SBC is run by a class of folks who are very much looking to Keller for strategic guidance and trying to deploy his strategies in the SBC. Um, so, so you said, you know, a moment ago, Keller doesn't view his constituency as, you know, churched Americans or what have you. His, his concerns are predominantly about how to evangelize New York City. Well, if you're leading the SBC, your constituency is that is the church and it's the SBC. And you do have a, you do have a missions concern as well, but that missions concern is, should be truly national, right? So inclusive of the cities, but also inclusive of the Bible Belt. And I look at even how resources are allocated in the Southern Baptist North American Mission Board. 
And uh, they have very much oriented themselves around sort of a Kellerite strategy where they're targeting um, church plants in major cities. Uh, this strategy has resulted in higher rates of church plants failing or actually even more common uh, church plants uh, getting to financial self-sufficiency and then promptly leaving the SBC because they actually are embarrassed to be associated with the SBC. And meanwhile, across the Bible Belt, you've got uh, scores of churches that have flocks, have congregants that are shutting down because they can't find pastors. Um, so, so there's these places where essentially the harvest is white, the harvest is ready, it's ripe, it's ready to be taken. And, um, you know, theoretically, a domestic missions agency could subsidize young pastors who go in and step into these, you know, rural Bible Belt flocks to help operations continue. But instead, they're, they're kind of allocating resources predominantly towards uh, really coastal urban centers. Um, I, I guess my question is just why? What do you make of that? I, you know, J.D. Greer is a great example of this and his his role in the SBC debates. But why has Keller's strategy been adopted wholesale by people who, for whom there's a much less uh, good fit relative to their constituency? Well, if I read that document about the decline and renewal of the American church, there are some things I disagree with in there, but there's a lot of great analysis in there. Keller is actually very smart. He has done a lot of reading and analysis. He's got world-class people advising him. I don't think it's any secret that James Davison Hunter uh, is a good friend of, of Tim Keller. So very likely that many of Keller's strategies were vetted by people like that. He's got an incredible brain trust to bounce ideas off of and get feedback from. And he's an incredible communicator. Uh, so that's certainly something that's, um, you know, it makes sense that people would go do that. Whereas I must say the more quote unquote fundamentalists or conservative evangelicals often do not have that sort of sophisticated cultural analysis, that level of strategic thinking, Etc. And therefore, they're very focused on doctrine, preaching the Bible, things of that nature, less about strategic engagement with the culture. You know, add to that the fact that on a global basis, there has been mass urbanization, which is legit. And in the United States, that these urban centers, particularly elite urban centers, are where the economy uh, and the culture uh, and basically all the power in America has been concentrated, there is a certain, uh, you know, rationale for being very concerned about cities, maybe not exclusively uh, about cities, but caring about cities. And so when you just look at the sophistication of what Keller has to say and compare it to what other people are saying, it's easy to see why, you know, they would be, you know, blinded by science, uh, as it were. Yeah. I mean, who is the conservative Southern Baptist leader who is providing great cultural diagnostics and strategies of that type? Who's laying out a strategy for the future that is as compelling as what Keller is laying out? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, Moeller is the de facto conservative culture leader in the SBC. Um, 
But to your point, his analysis tends to focus much more on uh, matters of theology and faithfulness. Um, and he's not, uh, has not done as much work on the uh, sort of proactive strategy setting. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a very fair point. Um, one that, uh, me and a number of friends in the SBC are trying to figure out and solve. Um, but you know, we do need, uh, you know, our, our, the, the SBC leadership class is essentially outsourcing a lot of their strategic, uh, guidance, uh, to, to folks like Keller and, and, you know, Russell Moore and others. And, uh, and I think it's fair to say that the conservative, leaning evangelical world has also outsourced a lot of its thinking to people like the conservative movement politically uh, and have not necessarily done their own thinking on a lot of things as well. Yeah. So, so there's certainly an issue there in my forthcoming book, life in the negative world, which you can pre-order on Amazon for its January release. I do try to give a start at my own thinking about how to respond to what I've labeled the negative world where society is somewhat hostile to Christianity. It's not as comprehensive as Keller's in part because uh, I feel like there's simply much more uncertainty in the environment. You know, I encourage an adoption of exploration thinking. Uh, we're not going to be able to put together a pat strategy uh, quite as uh you know, quite as neatly tied up in a bow like Keller. But I'm trying my best to put out some thinking that is uh, actually draws on some of Keller's thought, but also, uh, you know, provides alternative ways to think about things. Uh, for example, uh, a lot of Keller's strategy is what he, he, he labeled in his book, Center Church, a relevant strategy. It's trying to be relevant, whereas where I think we need to be much more rebalancing, not to eliminate relevance, not to eliminate transformation as goals, but to be strengthening our own institutions and our own church as a counterculture. So one of the things I would probably disagree with Keller on is, you know, the relative priorities on some of these points. I think we have a, a somewhat weak church and we need to focus much more on strengthening uh, our own institutions, strengthening the church in order to provide a sustainable base for evangelism and mission going forward. Yeah. Yeah. It, right. That it's, I mean, the, the, that's the basic, you know, Rod Dreher Benedict option instinct, right? Yes. It's it, not yes. just a, you know, run to the hills or anything, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. I would also, you know, you know, adopting maybe a James Wood perspective would mm -hmm. say rather than sort of um, downgrading some of these distinctives around gender theology, for example, we should maybe be more clear uh, than we have been uh, to date. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that has really drawn people to Jordan Peterson was some of his clarity on, for example, male, female differences. So, uh, you know, that's, that's getting a far field from the post. Um, yeah. But well, nevertheless, well, I would say that it's, it's somewhat characterized uh, by a, a strategy that's oriented towards evangelism, probably with a bias towards, upscale urban audiences uh, in alignment with Keller's background. Yeah. And this is key. It's, it's because evangelism and evangelism concern is not necessarily a one-way ratchet in the way that people think of it. Even shifting over to JD Greer, who pastors in the, in North Carolina, uh, in the South, um, 
that you know uh there is i think as evidence there there could be relevant strategies that are targeted toward um saying things that resonate with andrew tate fans for instance right um but those are clearly not on the table or really a deep concern for I think for the evangelistic strategy that, you know, JD Greer wants to follow. Right. That's um, an example of a gap in the market to be sure. One of the gaps I'm trying to fill is uh, we need to have a Christian response to the men's influencer uh, space, mm-hmm. which we don't currently. And so I'm trying to, I don't think I'm per se gifted as an evangelist, but I'm trying to equip people who are uh, to have some of the tools that they can use to reach that audience. And, and, you know, a lot of that audience is, I mean, they, they might be complementarianism might actually not be muscular enough for them. I mean, that audience, they, they want to hear, you know, they want to hear a very self-confident faith that knows about um, how men and women were created differently and what that means for social interactions and all the rest. Um, And frankly, a lot of, a lot of standard issue, even conservative theological evangelicalism does not have a sophisticated understanding of uh, sex differences and, and how those have often cashed out in human society. Right. Um, to the, Josh, if I could jump in on that, that real quick. I mean, it's one thing that people like, uh, you know, Amy Bird did this and Russell Moore does this. I think he's done it in some articles, but certainly in his, his new book. I mean, they're very quick to point out that, you know, the complementarian zeal from, um, you know, uh, Grudem, Ware, Piper, um, led to some serious doctrinal problems that can't be denied. And so the, the zeal to, you know, have an answer to egalitarianism and, and creeping feminism leads to eternal subordination of the sun stuff, right? And so even that, you know, is a sort of reactionary reformulation of, of traditional somewhat traditional, some innovative teaching on uh, the sex roles, you know, did lead to um, when they had their back against the wall or or sort of driving the logic to its first conclusion, trying to root this in a Trinitarianism uh, to bolster their claims that it actually led to heterodoxy. So I think that was particularly disastrous. In the meaning of marriage, I'm not a Trinitarian theologian, but the Keller's position sounds a lot like the eternal subordination to the sun, their analogy of the dance of the Trinity. I'm not quite sure how that differs from mm. eternal subordination to the sun, because they're using the relationship between three persons of a Trinity as the parallel for husband, wife mm. submission in the home. So, which I thought was really interesting because I would have thought the paradigmatic example would have been the, you know, the relationship of Christ and the church as a better mirror, yeah. but they, <laughs> use, they, they, they anchor it in the Trinity, um, perhaps because th- they want to stress equality. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, but nevertheless, I mean, it's interesting that nobody takes Keller to task over mm-hmm. the dance of the Trinity. Uh, so I, I think a lot of these things become uh, stalking horses for essentially political positions in tribalism. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that if the other side says something that's legitimate about you, that you don't need to clean up your own act. There are a lot of crazy things in conservative evangelicalism that need to be rejected. I think a lot of those traits that Keller has listed about fundamentalism, they are pervasive in a lot of places. 
and they're off-putting to a lot of people. And we probably can't work with people who are too much in that, at least not unless you're willing to be 100% on board with their approach. On the other hand, you know, even the allegations of abuse tend to be very selective in how they're applied. Uh, you know, I, I follow a few of the abuse advocates and like, where are they? Uh, when they when it comes to abuse allegations against ministries associated with Senator Raphael Warnock's church. Uh, and you can see a, a number of them are radio silent about a number of allegations that have come forward. And so I'm not saying they don't care about abuse, but fundamentally, these are weapons to be wielded against political opponents. If we're really concerned about Trinitarian theology, then I would like to hear an analysis of Keller's Trinitarian theology as expressed in the meaning of marriage, but I don't see anyone doing that. Hmm. Right. So I think, you know, there are issues there, uh, legitimate issues that need to be addressed. But this idea that the concern, primary concern is having a sound doctrine of the Trinity versus scoring points against political opponents. I don't think we have to take people's claims at face value on that. This is much more like politics in my view. Yeah, uh, William Wolf got into trouble for for making this argument, you know, defending, I think he was sticking up for Wayne Grudem. And, uh, you know, to your point, Aaron, I mean, you know, Wayne I, mean, I have a ton of criticisms of Wayne Grudem. I, mean, I have a lot of criticisms of the way that complementarian theology has been articulated. So, uh, no, for uh, sure. But with Wayne in particular, um, you know, he's been writing and saying things about the Trinity for 20 years that I would say are, you know, uh, certainly distinguishable and meaningfully different than classical uh, right. theism, but but it the the critique really only got shrill, and you know accusations of heresy really only started to emerge after he wrote a long op-ed in you know the 2016 era about why he was going to vote for Trump. Right. So. Yeah. No. That right. that's an interesting phenomenon where. All these uh, some some fairly liberal scholars on the Trinity, all of a sudden were very very concerned with the precise minutia of the doctrine of the Trinity, um, but it was always because they were using that to argue against you know the patriarchalists right. and and everyone and and all of a sudden that that mattered to them. I mean, and these are people who are not orthodox really in their theology. Well, to bring it back to the article, this is relevant to. Keller's strategy, and this is not applying to Keller himself, obviously, who's no longer with us. But my prediction is, and I'm going to actually write a piece about this maybe tomorrow, that the anti-fundamentalism is basically going to translate into our political opponents. And that you don't have to be a fundamentalist in any material sense of the word to be someone that they want to separate from and treat as a zone one bad person that you cannot engage with. Uh, and, you know, we see this, again, in, in all of these things, um, in, in the way that it's very selective in how they, you know, how they go after it. Uh, and, and so we'll just, I think it's going to be very selective, it's going to be very highly selective in who they go after. Uh, you know, having said that, you know, if your Trinitarian theology is incorrect, then you need to correct, you need to get correct. You know, I, I do think there have been a lot of legitimate issues on the conservative side of the house that have never been addressed because there has been something of a boys club that has protected 
you know, a lot of people from scrutiny that they should have had. Yeah, and I, I think um, in the SBC, at least, that the current dynamic is that um, the conservative resurgence actually relied upon and uh, used the boys club dynamic to chase out the moderates and the liberals in the convention 30 years ago. I think, you know, even folks like Al Mohler would, would admit that as part of the conservative resurgence, there was actually a downgrade in like governance and, you know, kind of open, good process for, for governance. And that was partly necessary. You know, it was a, you know, this was an insurgent campaign. Um, but now I think that the, all of that good boy network in the SBC at least has been commandeered and taken over by uh, moderates like JD Greer and the conservatives are sort of the reform process minded faction of the SBC right now. Um, they want financial transparency. They want good governance. They want uh, entities to make their bylaws public and make, you know, show who the board is. They want better procedures around financial controls and disclosure of conflicts of interest, all that boring, good governance stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's, so it's actually the, the stars are somewhat aligning in that sense where um, I think there's actually just a tremendous uh, leadership vacuum in the SBC. The, the, current, the current leadership, uh, for the most part, not entirely, but, but largely, is not really pitching a message that resonates with the people in the pews in the SBC. Uh, because I think they actually they're misreading the situation because of strategic guidance like like Keller's guidance. And that actually really opens up a significant lane for uh, new leadership. Yeah, well, I do believe Keller is extraordinarily influential. You cannot underestimate how influential he is, even well outside of his Presbyterian universe. And the reason there's a reason he's influential. He's been highly successful. He's an intelligent, well-read, puts forth these strategies. And the fact that he's no longer with us does not, in my estimation, mean that these strategies are just going to collect dust on the shelf. I believe a lot of people are going to pay a lot of attention to this and that we are going to see people in organizations shift in this direction. In fact, I was told that a major complementarian evangelical organization that I can't name is going to be making a move uh, very much like this in the near future. Uh, somebody sent me an email in response to uh, my piece. So we'll, we'll see, but this is one to keep an eye out for. And you can say, is the Aaron run analysis correct about what's going on? Or did it turn out to just not be correct? Because it might not be correct in terms of what if this thing catches fire, but we certainly see uh, plenty of intimations that it is so far. So, so what's the, we've got the Aaron Wren analysis. Um, what's the, what's the Aaron Wren solution? Um, should there be some sort of uh, consensus statement or, you know, should, should, should leaders of more conservative minded institutions actually try to promulgate an alternative strategy? I'm actually sort of a big tent guy in how I like to personally operate uh, so I'm I'm not necessarily uh, averse to talking or even working on certain things with people who are very different uh, than me on a lot of points on a case-by-case -case basis, uh, provided that there's actually someone you could legitimately partner with. 
but in terms of a again a strategy for the church moving forward, and in this this get rid of complementarianism, substitute in this anti fundamentalism. That's only one element of a much broader strategy that Keller lays out, and I'll probably engage with in the future. But uh, some of it again is, is I'm going to have a, a little bit of an alternative thinking uh, in my book. So I guess you'll just have to stay tuned for that. But I, I don't have, and I don't believe there is a, you know, 10 point plan to win the war because we are in unprecedented times. We are in a rapidly shifting cultural environment. And therefore one of the shifts that we have to make is a shift away from sort of management type thinking. Well, we're just going to plan and execute this strategy Although obviously you need to have strategies and things that you plan, but we need to have exploration type thinking, much more like startup type thinking, where we're going to have to rapidly adapt to a constantly shifting landscape until things settle down at a point. At some point, there will probably be something of a new normal, and then we can sort of regenerate a more of a planning mode as the situation becomes less fluid and as we learn some things about what works and doesn't work. Yeah. Well, um, Timon or Ben, any final questions or thoughts? I think we're probably coming up to the end here, but uh, give you a chance, either of you, to, to have a final word here. Oh, I've just been yep. enjoying listening to this. So, yeah, I'll let Timon uh, see what he has. Oh, no. I, I just... I mean, I, I was thinking again, you know, with with the way Aaron's laying this out, which I think makes uh, makes a, a, t a ton of sense in terms. Of, and it, I, I'm I'm going to go ahead and endorse and sign on to the uh, the predictions here, in case anyone was wondering. But it was it's almost like sort of poetic or um, a a picture of what's what's happening. That you know, Harry Reader died the same week as Tim Keller, if I'm not mistaken, right? Um, yeah. And and he got none of the, the the treatment, you know, certainly not from from mainstream press as far as as far as I know, like Keller would, but even from, you know, in-house evangelical press, you know, there was there was mention of it or, or something, but none of this this laudatory stuff. And you know, maybe to some extent that's that's because of the the nature of the new Calvinist movement and, and Keller's place in that and his just his sort of presence. But I mean, Reader was pretty much represents the fundamentalist side of, the, of this divide, certainly in the, in the PCA in terms of a sort of culture or ethos divide, but, but generally, I mean, Reader was well known. And so it was, a, it was sort of interesting that they both passed away at the same time, right as Keller's laying out the strategy of sort of out with the, the old and in with the new or, or sort of new sort. Um, and it also struck me in Russell Moore's piece that you quote from Aaron, if, if there's, you know, if, if we were to do this, this would be called Schmidian for sure of where he's talking about, you know, we need to reclassify and shift our definitions of friend and enemy, essentially, along these lines of the, the, the goals we're pursuing in this sort of realignment. But he has a way of, of producing it in a way that seems, you know, inoffensive. And so maybe on the right, we need to, to learn how to do that better as well and be a little more esoteric uh, in the way we present it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this goes back to the... Um, this goes back to the point Aaron made earlier on, but uh, you know the the definition of fundamentalists is so manipulable and it's it's attitudinal, right? It's uh, I mean it was famously defined as you know some uh, son of a bitch that is slightly to the 
uh, slightly to my right. Right. And, uh, we could, there's no reason we couldn't. And, and I think we do to some degree, but, you know, sort of construct camps, uh, that describe, uh, you know, squishy liberals, right. And, and sort of mark them out as, as, um, you know, objects of suspicion or, or camps that we would have, uh, difficulty, uh, difficulty working with. Um, well, with that, I think we're going to call this one a wrap. Um, thank you all so much for, for joining us here. Um, I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, as a reminder, you can check us out at AmericanReformer.org. We're on Twitter at AmReformer. That's A-M Reformer is our handle. Uh, ben, Tom, and myself on Twitter as well. Uh, if you'll enjoy the show, please uh, leave a rating, uh, subscribe. Um, all of that helps us to grow. Um, Thank you very much, and until next Thank you for listening to the American Reformer podcast. Make sure to visit us online at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at AMReformer.